by the power of your love. Tragically, in the very front, so if you're standing up in the back, you can. There's also some seats over here, and a couple seats over there. Um. All right, how's everyone this morning? Good. Some of you are awake. Some of you look a little confused. Okay, not quite sure yet. That's all right. God knows who you are and he loves you even if you're confused. So that's good to know. Uh, This morning we're going to look in John chapter 7. You know, the farther you go into the book of John, and the more you walk uh, through... Uh, Jesus' story as it unfolds in the book of John, the more you become aware of the fact uh, that Jesus is totally out of step with his, his peers. Uh, and really, by the time we're only in chapter 7, already we're at a point where uh, largely Jesus is at odds with everybody. Okay? Uh, he is not popular. He's, he's, uh, he's popular in the sense that he can attract a great crowd, but, but constantly they don't like what they see. And people are frustrated, they're mad, they, they're uh, complaining and murmuring. Um, they're becoming more divided in their opinions about them, as we'll see in this chapter. Um, and it really is becoming clear that what Jesus brings is radically different. Jesus is radically different. He's not just a little different, he's not just a slight variation on an old theme. He is different. And uh, he really is uh, marching to the beat of a different drum. That's the title of my message this morning, because Jesus really did march to the beat of a different drum. Uh, If you know what that picture, that word image comes from, it comes from a marching band. How many of you have ever played in a marching band? Okay, a few of you know how this works. The drummer is very important, because the drummer sets the cadence, and everybody marches to the drum, right? And, uh, like, if one guy gets out of step or marches at a little bit different speed, what you get is, like, a train wreck, because he like trips the person next to him and then they trip those people and pretty soon everybody's laying on the ground, right? So it's important that everybody marches to the same drum. But uh, sometimes there's those people who come along who march to their o- a different drum, a different beat. They're out of step with everybody else. And that was very much the picture of Jesus. And you become aware of that more and more as the gospel unfolds. And of course, ultimately, uh, that's why they killed him. Not because he fit in so well, but because he was so unique and different. Um, you know, every, in every age and in every culture, Jesus really is counterculture. Uh, there's no culture, no time, or no age where Jesus fits in comfortably. Okay, if that's true, then you're either in heaven, okay, and you died and you didn't know it, or, you know, it's, it's, it may be true that in some cases Jesus has so transformed that culture that he fits there, but that's very rare, very rare. The reality is that what Jesus taught and stood for and believed and lived is very con- counterculture to the world because the world is governed by sin and darkness and Jesus is light and those things just don't mix. So we see that. Uh, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting uh, that especially maybe in the West, uh, in our day and age especially, how every generation wants to be kind of counterculture. You know, nobody wants to dress like their dad, right? And I, that's true for me. When I was a kid, my dad had this, like, buzz haircut, which is very popular now, kind of this, this, this hair buzz, you know. My dad wore that, and I swore that was, like, the I just, oh, it was terrible. 
And to make matters worse, when I was like, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, up to about age 10, every summer my mom would get out the, the hair clippers and just, boom, all my hair would go. I felt like, uh, I felt like Samson, you know, and they shaved his head and gouged out his eyes. Totally humiliated. Humiliated. I wouldn't go out of the house for months until my hair would grow back. And I vowed when I was older and could, could have control over my own hair, I was never going to cut it. And so that was true for a long time when I was in high school. I, my hair got very long. Because you need to be different than the generation before you, right? And that goes with clothes, dress, hairstyles, music, you name it. Uh, uh, the idea is to not look like your parents. Okay, now in doing that, you don't realize that you may be looking like your grandparents. Okay, but, but you don't know that because you didn't live back then. So it kind of goes in these cycles, right? Uh, there's a sense in which we all want to have this identity that we are unique and different. We all want to have this identity that we're marching to a different drum. And usually what that means is we're marching to a drum different than our parents of the past generation. But it's interesting that we're, you know, we tend to fit into our own generation to its drum. And... Uh, you know, we want to march to a different drum, but not too different. You know, we want to be different enough to be cool, not so different that we're weird, right? And if you go too far on that scale, you're not just different, you're weird, right? And nobody wants that. But Jesus is truly different, to the point, really, sometimes of being almost weird. He is ex different in the extreme. Uh, there's very little about Jesus that was culturally cool in his day. And uh, I would... I would put out to you that if you want to be truly unique and different, if you truly want to be an individual who marches to a different drum, march to the drum of Jesus. You will be unique. You will stand out. You may be not real popular, but you will be one of a kind, and your life will shine for eternity. And so we want to look this morning at how Jesus did that in some ways uh, from John chapter 7. Let me read the first few verses here. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, or tabernacles. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this all the time. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't really believe in him. Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go any time. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to the festival at this time, because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. Um, this comes after Jesus had uh, fed the 5,000. Uh, we know that that event took place around Passover, which was in uh, March, April, time of year, spring. The Feast of Tabernacles took place in, in September or October. So this is about six months later, kind of the other half of the year. Uh, there's no record of really what went on in the in-between time other than that he taught around Galilee. Uh, it says that he was keeping kind of low profile. Uh, and this is within Jesus' last year of ministry. So this is the last Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus is around. 
And he's, he's uh, six months from Passover former, but he's also about six months away from the Passover that will be the cross. And he's in that in-between period. And his name and fame and notoriety has escalated so that he's really very well known. And as we know, the Jewish leaders have, have determined to kill him. And so because of that, he's, he's staying away from Jerusalem. He's kind of keeping a low profile. Uh, not because he's afraid of dying, but because he, as we will see, is following his father's timetable. Um, and his brothers come up with a great plan, and they see this. They see Jesus, his brother. He's probably based in Capernaum. It's very likely that Jesus' brothers also were living in Capernaum at this time. And they see Jesus kind of sneaking around the backwoods of, of Galilee. And they're going, you know, Jesus, we hate to tell you this, but you're never going to get big this way. You know, your book sales are going to go down. You know, you're not going to get radio time. You're not going to get on Oprah if you just hide out like this all the time. You've got to get out there and, you know, make, make a name for yourself. And uh, Jesus is not interested in their formula for success. Uh, but they've got it figured out. And they, they know how this could work. And it really is a, a very common model, one that we would uh, see in books today. If you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to make it big, you want to make an impact, you need to be famous. You need, you need fame and acclaim to be successful. That's the world's formula for success. Be popular. And if you're popular enough and a lot of people like you, that is, in essence, what it means to be successful. And that really is what they were saying to Jesus. You know, you can't become famous, but I like the New Living translates it that way. You can't become famous if people can't see what you can do. You've got to go to Jerusalem, the key city, the capital city, go to the big place, attract big crowds, you know, get on Oprah, get on the talk show circuit, um, get out there, let them see your miracles, let them see what you can do, show your stuff. And then you will become famous and you'll be popular. And uh, if you really have something going for you, uh, people will buy into it and you will be successful. Uh, that really is oftentimes uh, the world's view of what success is. Uh, success is measured by how well something sells, by how popular it is. Uh, ironically, this, this is kind of grade schoolish. You know, remember grade school when this was like the rule of, of life. You know, if you wanted to be somebody, you had to be popular. If you're popular, you know, like grade school elections came around, and everybody criticizes grade school elections because it's just a popularity contest, right? and you, you vote in, and then pretty much it just stays the same when you get to be adults, right? Elections become what? Popularity contests. We just spend a lot more money to become popular, right? And uh, it's on a bigger scale. Uh, students at school oftentimes measure, or adults as well, can measure our, our value, how successful we are as a person, by how popular we are. Uh, do we, are we able to attract a crowd around us? Uh, do we learn how to say the right things to be cool so that people will think we are popular? Okay, we can translate this into ministry. Oftentimes we measure ministry success in terms of how big it is, what kind of crowds we can attract. You know, uh, there, there's one, I won't name him, but you may know, there's one particular evangelist who went to India and attracted, I think, a crowd of a million and some would say, well, that has to be very successful. I don't know if it was successful or not, 
But is that really the measure? Do we measure success by how big it is, by how popular it is? Because it attracts worldwide attention, does that make it good? All right? Um, how grand are the miracles? You know, the, the, his brother said, you know, go show your stuff, do big miracles. Uh, put on a good show. Show people what you can accomplish and what you can do. And that really is the world's model for success. And uh, you read a lot of Christian books, you read a lot of Christian uh, instruction on church planting and on ministry, and they really paint this kind of picture. The success is based on being successful by the world's standards. Um, but Jesus did not measure his success uh, by these criteria. And in fact, if he had, he would have got to the cross and would have had to say, I have absolutely, utterly failed because I am not very popular. In fact, they are killing me. The crowds are demanding my death. My own disciples have abandoned me. And he went to the cross alone. And by the world's standard, he was not popular and he was not successful. The more he taught and the more he did miracles, the more people disliked him. Uh, Jesus did go to Jerusalem a little later. He did do some pretty cool miracles. He did draw great crowds. But in the end, they didn't like his message. And he was not, by the world standard, successful. Instead, Jesus has a different idea of what success is. And he doesn't mention it here, but in other places he spells out very clearly what success was for him. He said, I must do the work the Father has sent me to do. That was his measure, his only measure of success, to be obedient to all that God the Father had called him to do. In our lives, is that how we measure success? Not on how big it looks, how even successful it looks in our own eyes, but do we ultimately measure success based on obedience to God's calling and mission for us? For Jesus, it was that simple. He said, my life is all about doing my Father's business, the work that the Father has sent me to do. I measure all success in my life based on that criteria alone. Either I am being obedient to his mission, or I am not regardless of its outcome, regardless of the crowds it attracts or it drives off, Jesus was committed firmly to being obedient. Um, ultimately, uh, that must be how we evaluate success in our own life. Are we being obedient to everything God calls us to? If we are, we are being successful. Now, this is easy to talk about, and it's easy to say this, okay? If I were to have to take a survey, you know, do you want to be successful by being obedient to God? All of us would raise our hand. But when it comes right down to it, it's not that simple. I remember many years ago when uh, I was younger and wanting to be successful, I really had these dreams and visions of pastoring this big church, you know? And uh, I had had friends and known people who had gone up and started these little Bible studies of 12 people, and like three years later, it's a church of 5,000. And I was so egocentric and proud and foolish that I really thought I had those same gifts and abilities. Since then, I'm not so sure I have those gifts and abilities. But more importantly, I don't have that calling. But at the time, I didn't understand that. And so I wanted to have big ministry. I wanted to do things that would, would bring fame and popularity. That would make me look cool and impressive. So... Finally, God called me to ministry, and uh, at first I was a little reluctant, and then he called me into a specific ministry doing rural church planting. 
uh, where, you know, places where not only are you not going to build a church of 5,000, but places where there probably aren't 5,000 people in the whole county. And, and uh, I had a decision to make, to be obedient to what God called me to or to pursue my own definition of success. Well, thankfully, uh, God had really humbled me a lot in this process, and I uh, decided obedience was a good thing to do. And I remember going to this first little rural church plant where God sent us, and driving... Well, the first time I drove there, it was pitch black and dark. It was probably a good thing, or I would have just cried. But the next morning, it was Sunday morning, I was supposed to go preach this little church plant, and I remember driving out to this church, and as I drove, I looked around, I thought... I mean, I, didn't, I swear I didn't see one house... We drove 10 miles from town out to this church out in the middle of nowhere, and, and like there was like four houses on the road the whole way. And I thought, nobody lives here. If I reach the whole community, it'll be like eight people. And, and, and God said to me, don't worry about that. You just be obedient to what I've called you to do. I'll take care of that. Numbers don't matter to me. And uh, in doing rural ministry, I had to really come to grips with that. That God is not concerned about tens of thousands of people. He's considered, he is concerned about one person at a time, and praise God for that. He is concerned about you as an individual, uh, as much as he is about us collectively as his church. And I had to get God's value and God's priorities and submit in obedience to go ahead and preach. I thought I was going to have to preach to the pine trees and the cows. And uh, at first, that's pretty much what it was. After several pine trees got saved, they started sharing, and pretty soon people started coming, and, you know, God, God worked. Um, it's interesting for Jesus, ultimately, for him, obedience was the obedience of suffering and death. Uh, Jesus ultimately measured success by the cross, by the most difficult, most painful and agonizing experience. But through that, it brought redemption. And you see, that really is how we measure success. Those things where God moves and he redeems. Maybe one life, maybe one person, maybe one town, one community. Uh, and it comes at the cost of personal suffering on our part. It is not usually that difficult to be popular. You know, if you learn to say the right things, you learn to put on the right face, you learn to look cool... Uh, which for some of us is harder than others. I'm still working on that one, the looking cool thing. Um, you know, you put on the right image, and people, you can attract a crowd. A little bit of talent, you can attract a crowd. Obedience is never that simple. Almost always, obedience involves some kind of suffering and hardship. You know, uh, it, it at the very least means sacrificing, giving up our own desires and our own will for God's and for God's purpose and agenda. But Jesus is willing to do that. He's willing to lay down his life completely, suffer and give up everything for the sake of fulfilling God's mission of redemption. Um, and ultimately that is um, that is what God calls us to. To suffer, to lay down our life in service to him, to bring about redemption um, and the saving of lives. Uh, in the midst of all this, um, you know, it illustrates, it says, the last verse of the section says that, that the disciples, were, or his brothers were giving him all these great and wonderful ideas, this great strategic plan, 
Uh, and it says that in the end, his brothers didn't really believe him. There's two ways to read this passage. One, that his brothers are being a bit sarcastic, that they don't really believe him, and so they're saying this all kind of with tongue-in-cheek, you know, ah, why don't you go, you know, put on the good show. It's possible that they said it that way, but I believe it's more likely that they were genuinely thinking about how Jesus could be successful. I think they were sincere in their advice. Uh, but their lack of faith caused them not to really see what Jesus' mission was truly about. Uh, they weren't able to grasp who Jesus really was. The ironic thing in this is that his brothers, as much as the crowds in Galilee, had seen Jesus doing over and over these incredible miracles. Uh, they had heard Jesus teach, and it hadn't impacted them. And it kind of, Jesus is, or John is putting this in to, to show that their own advice is faulty from the start. It didn't work in their life. What made them think it would work in Jerusalem? Kind of the irony of what he's saying here. A paradox. They're saying, go down there and, you know, do all your miracles, do cool stuff, teach them, show them your stuff, and man, you'll, you'll be successful. But the reality was, Jesus hadn't even been successful with his own brothers. Okay, there's the word of encouragement for us here. Jesus, who was the greatest teacher ever, the greatest preacher ever, was not able to successfully bring his own brothers to faith in himself. Okay, there's some encouragement in that for you and me, because we're far less gifted as preachers and teachers. And sometimes if you don't see results, you can take consolation in the fact that Jesus didn't see really a lot of results either sometimes. All right? Secondly, um, Jesus did these incredible miracles. Incredible miracles. And they had very little effect. And the bottom line, it illustrates the impossible task of grasping Jesus. Before the cross... And before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, really nobody came to Christ. You know, the disciples eventually grasped partly who he was, but by and large the crowds never understood him. Even his own brothers didn't get him. And it's a great reminder for us that it requires the work of the Holy Spirit for ministry to take place in people's lives. Uh, if we have this idea that we're going to go out and save the world by our great teaching, our great, great preaching, our great uh, abilities and gifts, uh, think again. Jesus couldn't do it on his own. It wasn't until the cross had broken the power of sin and he had poured out his Holy Spirit in the earth that people could really grasp who he was. Uh, if that's true, if it's true that people can't come to Christ and ministry can't happen unless the Holy Spirit infuses their life, then it means that the beginning point for all ministry must be prayer, not our doing. Now, as we need to do, we need to go, we need to preach, we need to proclaim, but all of that must begin first and foremost with prayer. Praying the Holy Spirit into our circumstances. Praying the Holy Spirit and the power of His shining light opening people's hearts and minds to the truth of God's Word. Uh, it amazes me how often in my own life I charge up into ministry, doing things, and halfway along the line I might remember to pray a little, oh yeah, God, by the way, you know, help do something here. And then I go on my way and, you know, there's like this much fruit, a thimble's worth of fruit, and I get discouraged. And I think, see, I'm just a failure. But God says, you know, you're doing this all backwards. You need to start by prayer. 
And not just any prayer, but prayer that appropriates God's promises by faith. Where we lay claim to what God has said He would do in His Word, and we apply it specifically in our situation, in our ministry context, and in our lives, and with our friends, and with our family, with other students at school. Uh, Jesus was really very unsuccessful in terms of bringing about a great revival in his day. His success was the cross and was what it did to bring redemption and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We can do no less than starting in those places with the cross, with redemption, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and through a lot of prayer. Uh, Then we go forward uh, in the power of his spirit and his word and God will bring fruit. Okay, so the first thing is uh, Jesus really rejected and did not buy into the world's idea of success. Secondly, um, he schedules his life around God's timetable, not man's. The disciples say, you know, uh, now's the time. There were three great festivals where all Jewish males were expected to go. And uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of them. It was really the most popular. It was in the fall. It was the end of the harvest. It was a seven-day-long festival with lots of food. Okay, if you're going to go to a festival, this is a good one to show up for. Like a seven-day-long potluck. All right, it was good. Good food, kind of a, a great celebration, kind of like a week-long of Thanksgiving. Uh, it was a very popular festival. Lots of people went. And his brothers said, you know, it's time to go. We've got to go uh, to Jerusalem. Surely Jesus had been many, many, many times, perhaps maybe every year of his life up to this point. But Jesus says, now is not the right time for me. Uh, There's a right time and a wrong time, and my life is not ordered by human calendars or human events or human schedules. Uh, Jesus says, my time is is managed by God the Father. Now, uh, we know there were reasons why he didn't want to go. He says, my hour has not yet come. Uh, Some people see in that a reference to the cross and his death. And certainly, Jesus knew that they were out to get him. And when he does finally go to Jerusalem, he's very careful. Uh, he, he's not as upfront and out, out in public anymore. He's much more behind the scenes and guarded because it is not the right time for him to die. And he will be in control of that event. It will be on his terms and his time according to the will and purpose of the Father. But probably he means more here just generically. In fact, the word that's used for time here is a different word than the hour. It literally means time And probably he's just simply saying, you know, my time to go up to the festival is not yet come. Because my days are not ordered by your timetable or by people's expectations, but by God the Father. Uh, In fact, in a few verses, the next verses, uh, after his brothers leave, he does go up to the temple. He goes to Jerusalem by himself. Uh, He does go and and, uh, eventually teaches in the temple. But he's not about to have his schedule written by man. His schedule and every detail is governed by God the Father. Uh, And he only moved and only went and only went when God the Father directed. Uh, He was not avoiding his enemies. We know that six months later he would go to Jerusalem. Uh, He would go to the cross. He wasn't afraid of the Jewish leaders. He was willing to suffer and die at the right time. But all of that would be governed and dictated and directed by his Father. And so, 
uh, in one sense, had Jesus had a Palm Pilot or a day timer or a calendar, uh, you know, and, and he would have said, you know, Jesus, are you free for lunch tomorrow? Well, his calendar would have been largely blank. But he would have probably answered something like this, well, I don't know, I'll have to ask God about that. Because God the Father schedules my appointments. Okay? Uh, now, it's interesting, he says to his brothers, he says, my, the time is not right for me, my life is directed by God. He says to his brothers, you guys can go any time, time really doesn't matter for you. And the wording here is very interesting. It's really, it's really quite a slam. Okay? Really what he says to them is, for you, time doesn't matter. And he goes on to, to, to explain, because the world can't hate you. The world hates me because I condemn the world, I, I reveal to the world its sin. But you are part of the world, so it doesn't hate you. Therefore, time doesn't matter for you. Uh, in short, what Jesus is saying here is that your life really has no significance apart from God. So it really doesn't matter what your schedule is. Okay? Uh, I don't know if they got this. Um, they may have. They may have very well understood what Jesus was saying and were very offended insult and insulted by it. It would be kind of like me saying to you, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, where you go. It doesn't matter because you're not in God's will anyway and you're going to hell, so it doesn't matter when you go to hell. You know, go today, go tomorrow, it doesn't matter. That's kind of the effect of what Jesus said here. And there's a lot of truth in that. Your life either has significance because you're following God's will and God's purpose, or you are outside of God's will and purpose, and then it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do or where you go. Uh, your life only has meaning and significance within God's purpose and plan. So it doesn't matter if you go find a cure for AIDS or stop world hunger or become president or live on the beach and flunk 10th grade or become a dictator of a small country or if you get rich or you, you know, are a bum. It really doesn't matter if it is outside of God's will because our, our life has meaning and purpose and significance only within the context of God's great scheme and plan. Jesus says, I am living by God's will and my, my days are directed by Him. Therefore, every moment of my day, every moment of my life is appointed and scheduled by God. But for you, you're in the world, he says to his brothers, so it really doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. Uh, ironically, when we live apart from God, there is incredible freedom, but incredible insignificance. In Christ, our life has incredible meaning, but it is governed and directed by God himself. Okay? Uh, his brothers, I don't think, quite got that yet. And uh, sometimes I don't think I do either. Um, I know it in theory, but the reality is, do we, do we schedule our life around God's timetable? Uh, I'm sure all of us have schedules, daytimers, palm pilots, you know, it's part of how life works these days. Um, does God really have control of our schedule? Uh, does he really set the timetable for our life? Uh, you know, there, it, it would be tempting to say if God was in control of my timetable, I wouldn't be nearly as busy. Well, that may not be true. Jesus was sometimes incredibly busy. Sometimes his life was incredibly full. 
It says in the Synoptic Gospels that sometimes things got so crazy he couldn't even eat. Okay? Uh, and his family came and told him, you know, we need to take you to an insane asylum because obviously you flipped. All right? Well, uh, you could argue that Jesus' schedule was out of control, but Jesus would say, no, every appointment I have today was divinely ordered by God. But it's also true that there were times when God was, God's schedule was very empty. There were times when he set time apart, went to quiet and lonely and solitary places and was alone with God. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that if God's in control of your schedule, life will be easier. It may get worse. You know, it could. It could get much busier. And you may be thinking, well, I don't want that, you know. It could get more boring, you know. God could completely clean off your schedule. But the point is this. Is God the one really in control of our schedule and our daytimer? Is he really the one who we have submitted our time schedule to? And do we really believe that God is divinely ordering and appointing our days? Uh, I think that's the important thing to to take stock of. Every morning when you get up, uh, weekly, monthly, yearly, to look at your calendar and your time and your schedule and say, God, my life is yours. I want you to be in control of of its time of its schedules, of its minutes, of its hours, of its days. Um, Practically, how do we do that? You know, do we just get up in the morning and wait for God to send an email that says, today, Tim, this is what you're supposed to do. It would be so much easier, wouldn't it, if God would do that. If you would say, Tim, you know, I want you to take the day off and go just pray for the day. You know, I'm all about that. Sounds good to me. God says, you know, Tim, you've been working hard. Go to the beach for a month. Hallelujah. You know, uh, how do we know? How do we do this practically? Uh, people call. They want appointments. They want schedules. People, you know, um, you can't just show up at the airport and say, you know, God told me I need to fly today. And they say, well, do you have a ticket? And you say, well, no, but God told me. And they say, well, sorry, it's full. You know, um, there comes a point when we need to plan ahead. So how do you do this practically? Well, first of all, I think it's just a matter of first and foremost scheduling time alone with God to let him speak to you about your schedule. You know, if you never set time aside to be still and quiet before God and let him direct and order your life, quickly your life gets out of control. Uh, I I can assure you from personal experience that if you have a blank schedule and you don't let somebody fill it up, it will fill itself up very quickly and it will be very full. So the first thing is to stop and say, God, Set aside that time to say, God, I want you to be in control of my time and my schedule. I want you to be the one who's governing uh, my hours and my minutes. Then we need to be careful to listen to what he says, to let him lead us, to let him guide us. Um, We need to be willing to wait upon him and really hear his answers. Uh, Ultimately, I think it comes to this. if we're truly seeking God's timetable for our life, we need to gain divine flexibility. Okay, some of it, for some of us, this is difficult. Divine flexibi- flexibility means when your schedule gets interrupted by God, you see it as God's hand. All right? Sometimes it's hard to know, for me it's hard to know the difference between God's interruptions and, and Satan's. But uh, you know, we need to be open to God intervening in our schedule with divine appointments and interruptions. To those times when he 
brings people or events or circumstances into our life for his purpose. I remember one of these events in my own life. Uh, I was supposed to be teaching in India. I got on an airplane, uh, and it didn't leave when it was supposed to. It sat there for an extra hour. So it means I got into Calcutta an hour late, which meant I missed my connecting flight. That was not my schedule. And to make matters worse, it was a holiday. Uh, the trains were full. And I was going, okay, God, this is not what I schedule. I'm supposed to be at this conference tomorrow, don't you know? And it's important I be there to teach. And so I didn't like God messing with my schedule. But God had other plans. And in his purpose, he had this great divine detour where he wanted me to minister to this Indian national who was struggling in his faith. So he sent me on this 24-hour detour where I met this guy and had the chance to minister to this Indian national that I didn't even know and share and strengthen and encourage his faith. We need to be aware of God and give God the, the, the right to intervene in our schedule. And certainly Jesus did that. Um, third thing, as Jesus marched to a different drum. Uh, it says in verse 10, let me read on a bit. After this, his brothers left for the festival. Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling or murmuring about him among the crowds. Some argued he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And here you see the controversy around Jesus already arising. But then, midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And the people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks honor, <coughs> seeks to honor the one who sent him, speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. Um, Jesus finally shows up at this festival, at this, um, the festival of tabernacles, and he, uh, he does go to the temple and he begins to teach. And um, they are, this is a new crowd. He's been teaching in Galilee. This is now a new crowd. Many from Judea and Jerusalem, maybe from other, other districts or regions. And uh, many are astonished at the authority of his teaching. Uh, throughout the Gospels, people are struck by the authority of his teaching. And they wonder, how could he have such authority? How could he teach these things when he hasn't been to one of our schools? Okay? He speaks you know, so convincingly, so powerfully, so strong. How did, where did he get this from? Because he didn't go and graduate from you know, the University of Jerusalem from, you know, Lachaim's, you know, College of Theology, right? Uh, how did he get this? Uh, it's a bit ironic to me that they're impressed with his teaching and they know he didn't come from their university and they're kind of awestruck by that. It doesn't say much about their universities, right? It's like this should be a sign, okay? All of your teachers are boring and dull and Jesus is interesting and 
authoritative. Maybe these schools have, you know, served their time and their, their living death, right? Maybe you should close those schools. But they didn't see it that way. And it's really important to understand the Jewish system of learning, how this worked. In Jesus' day, no one ever taught or spoke an original idea. Okay? It was not allowed. What you did was you would study uh, what other rabbis had interpreted of other rabbis who had interpreted other rabbis who had themselves interpreted other rabbis who had interpreted other rabbis who had interpreted other rabbis all the way back to Moses. All right? And you would have this long, long, long tradition of, of what, the, what somebody said about what somebody said about what somebody said about the Bible. So by this point, you were like light years removed from Scripture. In that day, no one ever got out the Bible and actually would teach the Bible. They would read it. But when they went to talk about it, they would go to the commentaries of the commentaries of the commentaries of what this rabbi, rabbi taught, that that rabbi taught, that that rabbi taught. Okay? Uh, and that was how they taught. And they're amazed that Jesus didn't, didn't get this succession of tradition and precedent. And Jesus says, I don't need that. You know? And it's a bit ironic. If they knew who Jesus was, they would understand why. He's going, you know, I've got a direct connection to the source. I don't have to read the interpretations because I know the original author. In fact, I am the original author, actually. I am the Word incarnate. Of course, he doesn't say that. Uh, instead, he, he, um, he follows uh, Jewish custom and tradition. He says, my message is not my own. It's true. I am not making this up of my own. It came to me not from a rabbi or from a university or from a school of thought. It came directly from God the Father. Okay, and that's why it has authority. Uh, Jesus, there is power when you receive the word directly through God. When it is his word spoken fresh and direct to a new generation and a new, a new age. Uh, the message gets terribly watered down and diluted and lost when it's passed down from gen generation to generation without a new, fresh message. Just to, to give you an illustration or an example of this. Way back many hundreds of years ago, St. Francis of Assisi got this great revelation from God. He'd grown up as a merchant. His father was very wealthy. And uh, he realized that he couldn't himself personally really know God through this material uh, world of wealth and commerce and trade. And so one day he took the very shirt off his back, threw it at his father's feet, and said, you can have your shirt back, you can have everything that's yours back. And he walked out all but stark naked in just a t-shirt into the freezing cold in the snow. And in doing that, he found, he describes incredible joy and peace the joy of possessing nothing. And uh, eventually, because it was rather cold, he wore a brown robe of wool and tied a rope around his belt, and he lived as a wanderer and a beggar the rest of his days. But he did so with incredible joy because his life was filled with Jesus. And he found that in the freedom of nothing, the freedom of not... You know, talking about a free schedule, you know. If you sell everything and don't own anything, your schedule gets much more open. Because right? you have nothing to take care of. You don't have to change the oil in the car. You don't have to refix your computer. You don't have to answer emails. You know, try it. Just sell everything and walk out into the street 
And, you know, there's great freedom there. And in that great freedom, he met and encountered Jesus in a powerful way. And he describes this incredible joy of walking and living in Christ. Uh, and, and in possessing the blessed joy of nothing except Jesus alone. Well, later on, he had many disciples and many followers. A generation or two le- later, they had very much embraced this idea of poverty and nothingness. And they were really fond of the brown robe. Okay? They were still wearing the brown robe. They were still really poor. Uh, and they had retained that part of what Francis was about. And they knew that there was something about Jesus, and so they prayed a lot. And then another generation came and went, and many generations later, pretty soon it was down to the brown robe, and they were now proud of being poor, and they considered themselves better and more spiritual than people with stuff. And so they looked down on people with stuff, and they decided since they had nothing, they must be more godly than everybody else, and they were proud of their brown robes, and they knew nothing of Jesus, and knew nothing of peace. You see? And that's what happens when we pass on these traditions without fresh, direct word. I believe that, and of course, Jesus is unique here, okay? I will give you that. Jesus is unique. He was God. He brought a new and direct revelation. He was, in himself, the direct revelation of God. But I believe that God wants us to experience him firsthand, not through the traditions of traditions of men. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong. It's good to read books. I read lots of books. It's good to read about St. Francis. It's good to read Thomas Kempis, and it's good to read modern theologians and scholars. It's good to read, you know, other stuff as well. There's nothing wrong with that. But that can never be a substitute for a direct word to you from God through his word and by his spirit. If the only thing you're receiving, the only word you're receiving from God is through other people, you need to stop and go to the source. Uh, God wants to give you a message from himself. He wants to speak to you directly through his word. Uh, don't, you know, don't rest only on preachers and teachers and what other people have written. Okay, at some point, you need to have a personal word from God yourself. And there, it's exciting. It is exciting stuff. When God is giving his message to you, and you're in his word hearing him speak to your situation, to where you live, to what you are struggling with, to the doubts that you are wrestling with. And God wants to do that. And, uh, you know, the University of Jesus, there's nothing like it, of going to the source. Uh, The great promise is that Jesus, through faith, has come and has made his dwelling with us. We don't have to go far to the source. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus who's made his home with us, we are this close to the source. Okay? If God can't talk this far away, you know, the problem is not his, it's ours. And we need to learn to be sensitive to his voice that speaks, that leads us through his word. Okay? Um, Jesus says that one of the problems of, of taking knowledge from other sources is that pride will always cloud our vision. He said, people who speak for themselves out of their own thinking and ideas and traditions want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent them speaks truth, not lies. Uh, you know, one of the problems of 
Not getting a direct word from God is our pride gets in the way. Uh, even with theology, and I, and I can speak to this from first-hand experience. When I was young and even older, uh, I had my school of theology. Okay? None of my school of theology did I get directly from God. Okay? God didn't sit down and directly input into my head and my heart you know, any of the doctrines I got. I got them out of books from the traditions of men. Now, I believe that most of my theology, well, I believe all of my theology is 100% correct, okay? But you may disagree with that. Uh, and the reality is it's probably not 100% correct because it didn't come directly from God. But gradually, moment by moment, God is teaching me directly uh, his truth, okay? Now, the way this works is, the, it's, and it's ironic, the, the stuff that I got from other people I believe because that's what my group believes. It's what I am. And therefore, I own this theology as mine even though I didn't write it, I didn't invent it, and I don't probably mostly understand it. But it's what my group believes. And I find myself being very defensive and very proud oftentimes of those doctrines. Uh, because it's kind of like the guy you know who spent his whole life writing his doctoral dissertation and he comes to the end of the conclusion of it and he's defended it and he's argued it and he's, and he's, you know, exhausted it. And the next day, evidence comes out that totally refutes and dissolves his, old, his, whole, PhD, his old dissertation. But in, in light of this truth, he has too much of his own ego and pride invested in what he's done. So what does he do? He says, well, that evidence can't be true because I put too much of myself into this. So they defend it even though it's false. That's what happens when we let our pride and our ego when it's our man-made ideas. That's what Jesus is saying here. But when we know it came from God, we have no claim to it. There's no pride in that. If I have a message that clearly came from God, I can't brag about it that I came up with this. In fact, honestly... Usually the messages that come from God, I'm not real proud of. You know, when God gives me something to say, oftentimes I say, God, you really want me to say that? I can't say that. People will laugh at me. They'll throw things at me. They might burn me at the stake because it sounds crazy, right? God's message oftentimes uh, is not easy to share. And so there's no pride in it. But if I, my goal, as Jesus says, my goal is to bring glory to him. I say, hey, look, I'm just the messenger. God said it. Throw things at him. Okay? It's to his glory. I'm just the message boy. Right? Well, the last question people will say, when you talk about God's will, you talk about God speaking, uh, God talking to us, people inevitably say, yeah, well, how do you know it's God talking? This is dangerous. You know, this is dangerous stuff because, you know, I've heard people say, well, God told me, like, you know, every day they have breakfast together and, you know, over the breakfast table, God told me. And it makes people real nervous. And, uh, and people will say, well, how do you know God told you? Well, Jesus answers that. And he says simply this. Those, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my te teaching is from God. How do you know if a teaching, a word, an instruction, a message is from God or not? Well, it's very simple. Jesus says, those who are committed and sold out to doing God's will will know. 
If you are 100% committed to following God's will, and that is the consuming passion of your life, you will know the teaching that comes from Him. Okay? If you've sold out to giving everything in your life and bringing it under God's dominion and power and authority, then you will know and recognize His teaching and His truth. And likewise, you will know what's not from Him. You'll know what's from Satan or what's from the world. Uh, This is not an easy thing to do. It has to be 100%. Okay? We can't just try to squeeze God's will in between our will. You know, like, I'll have my will, I have my agenda, my time schedule, and when it's convenient, I have an empty slot, I'll kind of plug God's will in. It doesn't work that way. He says, literally, when our will is to do God's will, when everything in our, our desire, our heart, our willingness is only to do God's will, he says, then you will know, indeed, God's teaching you'll be able to recognize the words that come from Him. Uh, So that's easy, right? To submit yourself, God, I want your will, absolutely. And you'll hear His voice clearly. And when you hear His voice clearly, because you want to do His will, you will step out in obedience. So that's the real test of if you're doing God's will or not. You will be obedient to everything He calls you to. You say, yeah, but how do I know God's will? It's like a vicious cycle. You know, how do I know God's will until I hear His voice, but how do I know His voice until I'm doing God's will? It's impossible, right? Well, it's not that hard. The reality is, there's a lot about God's will we already know. Are we doing what we know? See, we spend far too much time worrying about the part of God's will we don't know instead of just doing the part of God's will that we do know. God calls us to love our neighbor. God calls us to love and worship Him. He says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. Have you been giving thanks today? Have you been loving people? Have you been doing the things that we know are true? Jesus says, you know, the bottom line is, you're trying to kill me. That's probably not God's will. Well, it was God's will, but not the way they were going to do it. It was God's will that Jesus died for sin. Uh, It was not God's will that they were murderers, right? He says, you can't understand when you are not walking in obedience to what you know of God's truth. The more we walk in obedience to God's truth, the more we are doing His will. Uh, The beginning of faith really is obedience. When we uh, commit ourselves to doing what we know, not out of duty, but out of love for Christ, then He opens up the door for us and He speaks to us. And our time schedule and our priorities and our vision for success falls clearly under God's plan and purpose. And uh, we will be marching to the beat of a different drum. Not the drum of this world, but the drum beat of, of the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, we we know that uh, the drumbeat of this world is very strong and very powerful. And Lord, we would love to say, and it's easy to say, that we're not marching to the drumbeat of this world. But if we're honest with ourselves, we would know that far too often 
its beat resonates through our life powerfully. And the reality is that it does pull us, that it does scream at us to conform to its pounding. And it's not easy to walk out of step with that beat. It's not easy to walk away from the things that the world offers to bring success and happiness and fulfillment. Uh, And Lord, it's harder to hear your drumbeat. It's not easy to hear your heart that beats uh, completely different, a heart of compassion and mercy, uh, a heart that calls us to righteousness and holiness, not by our own doing, but through the blood and work of Christ. Father, help us to be careful to hear and step by your will. No matter how much it puts us outside or at odds with the world, may we be people who are consumed with great passion for your will. So that in the end, our life will bring glory to your name. Lord, help us walk that way as Jesus did. We pray in his name. Amen.